You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, imagine you're waking up on a Sunday morning in November in Phoenix. It's sunny, it's crisp, it's cool outside. It's one of those mornings that you remember, oh yeah, this is why I live in Phoenix, right? This, this is the reason. It's beautiful outside. And you're planning on going to church on this Sunday morning, but you also are really excited for the rest of the day because you have nothing planned, nothing on the calendar, no errands to run, no schoolwork to do. It's just a free day. So you're really looking forward to the day and you want to kick the day off right by stopping by your favorite coffee shop on the way to church. And so you do. You swing by, you get in line, you get up to the counter, you put your drink order in and you're waiting, and there's actually not too many people at the coffee shop on a Sunday, and so the barista sparks a conversation with you. And they ask you the kind of casual and inevitable easy question, hey, what are you doing today? What are you up to today? And immediately, when they ask you that question, you can feel yourself tighten up a little bit. You get a little bit of tension in your mind about how you want to answer. Because you could say something like, oh yeah, I'm going to a pottery class with friends, right? Or you could say, I'm going out to eat with my family, or I'm going to do goat yoga at the park later. You could say any of those things, and the barista would be super excited and happy for you. But what would happen if you said, oh yeah, it's Sunday, I'm going to church today. Every Sunday morning, I gather in a room of people who follow Jesus, who proclaim that he died and rose again, who sing songs together. Some of us raise our hands and some of us sing off key. Not pointing any fingers. We hear from scriptures that are thousands of years old, and then we embody and proclaim the news that Jesus is Lord of us and Lord of our city and Lord of our world. That's what I'm doing this Sunday. A little awkward, right? Also, could I get some oat milk in my latte as well, please? Uh, You can't really move on from the conversation in that situation. Friends, if you say you're going to church, you say you're a consistent, uh, church-going Christian in our world today, things immediately get awkward. Really, really weird in our culture. People avoid eye contact, they don't know what to say. You mentioned you're going to church, it's a great way to shut down a conversation. And that's because most people see Christians as uneducated, anti-science, bigots in our world, narrow-minded, prude people. And the barista might not say those things explicitly to you, but those are certainly assumptions that exist in our world. And don't even get me started on saying you're a pastor in our culture. I've learned this over the last year and a half. Pro tip, if you don't want to talk to the person next to you on the plane, just say you're a pastor. And you will get no conversation for the rest of the flight. It will shut things down. But that dynamic, kind of the awkwardness that surrounds being a Christian in our world, that's actually a really new thing, particularly in the West, in Europe and North America. We, for most of Western history, have lived in a culture where Christians have actually been the predominant uh, people group that really runs culture. Uh, Sociologists and historians call this Christendom. It's a time when Christianity is the dominant cultural framework that most people affirm. And Christianity enjoys power in the culture. And the story of Jesus is at least well-known for people, if not celebrated and beloved. And the church has a central role in the culture. It's actually respected in Christendom, which is hard to fathom in our day. All of the major universities in the West, though, were founded in this era of Christendom. Harvard and Princeton and Yale, they were founded on Christian ideals. Hospitals and public services around our world were founded on Christian teaching. Christians were trusted in our world. And that framework dominated the Western world for about a thousand years, but then something started to change. 
right around a time period called the Enlightenment, which you may be familiar with from your schooling at some point, there was a, a major shift in the West. It was a time of great scientific development and research, and suddenly people started to question and doubt and have skepticism about this Christian way of viewing the world. And a lot of that was well-founded because the church had abused a lot of the power that it had. And so people moved farther and farther away from the church. Skepticism and doubt became the default posture, not faith, any longer. And then, recently, in the last few decades, while Christianity is rapidly spreading all around the world outside of the West, it is rapidly declining and dying here. And sociologists and historians are now calling this an era of post-Christendom or post-Christianity in the West. And the stats back this up. Throughout most of American history, Christians have made up somewhere between 70 and 80% of the population of the U.S. So they've kind of landed in that range. It's fluctuated a bit, but that range has been solid. The vast majority of people would call themselves Christians. But Gen Z, which is the first majority non-Christian generation in American history, is actually well, taking over things. More than 50% of people in Gen Z say, I'm not a Christian at all. And according to a recent Pew Research study, if current trends continue, by the year 2050, so in most of our lifetimes, Christians are likely to be about one-third of the American population. One-third. If you're doing the math, from 1950 to 2050, a 100-year span, Christians will drop by 50% in the U.S. We are in the middle of that world right now. And the greatest uh, religious demographic that's on the rise right now is a group called nuns. Not N-U-N-S. N-O-N-E-S. That is, people who would say they're religiously unaffiliated. They have no religious affiliation. They're actually going to be in the majority in the next couple decades. And so that's why when you encounter people and you say you're a Christian, they look at you like you're a unicorn. Because you don't exist in the wild anymore. They're not used to seeing you out there in public spaces. You people are still around? How, how is this? I thought we, were, we had gotten rid of this, right? In Europe, it's entirely gone. In the U.S., well, it's on the way. And because of the shift, Christian morality and ethics have been largely removed from our public discourse. Not even just in laws, but actually in our ability to converse with one another. We can no longer say that we're being informed by a certain uh, religious ideology. Religion has become a privatized matter, and you need to keep it out of the public sphere. So you can believe whatever you want. You can believe in Jesus or the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus or the Flying Spaghetti Monster. You can believe in whatever you want. Just keep that to yourself. You can't allow that to dictate your public inter interactions. There's a, a theologian named Lee Beach who talks about this. He says, the church is one of those former power brokers who once enjoyed a place of influence at the cultural table, but has been chased away from its place of privilege and is now seeking to find where it belongs amidst an ever-changing dynamic of contemporary culture. Christians have become exiles in the US. And that's not a word that many of us who have been raised in the US are used to saying. Exile is a weird word for those of us who have lived relatively privileged lives in cultural power. But it's actually a great way to describe Christianity in our world. And in the strictest definition of exile, it means somebody who has been displaced from their home to another place, uh, not in their will. People who have had to flee a place and are now living somewhere that isn't home. So refugees and asylum seekers are exiles. If you have those people in your life, we have a few of them in our community here. They know what this feeling of exile is like, and it's not fun. It's disorienting. They uh, live in a culture where they don't have much in the way of influence. 
There are lots of social barriers they have to overcome. And the dominant values of their culture run counter to their dominant values. They're seen as weirdos or outsiders. But exile is actually more than just displacement from one country to another. There's a Jewish-Hungarian author named Paul Tabori who says that exile can also be the feeling of being an outcast in one's own country. And that, in many ways, is what Christians are experiencing in America right now. They don't have much in the way of influence. There are lots of social barriers. They're weird and seen as outsiders. The dominant values of Christianity run counter to the culture. And in many ways, Christians have brought this upon themselves by not really expressing the life and the ministry of Jesus very effectively in the West. You guys, exile is any time that we've been separated from something that feels like home to us. It's any time that safety and security that we once enjoyed has been ripped out from under us. And so this leaves many of us in this room who would call ourselves Christians asking a really important question. How do I live as an exile? How do I live as an exile in the culture? And thankfully, we're not the first people to ask that question. As it turns out, that word exile and the concept of exile runs from the beginning to the end of this amazing library of texts. Exile is central to the scriptural story, and Christians aren't experiencing anything new. They're actually experiencing things that have happened for followers of God for thousands of years. And so they give us great wisdom, great advice on how we can live as exiles in our culture today. We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called When Things Fall Apart. We're looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, who was sent to the people of Judah a long, long time ago, before and during their own season of exile. And these were people who were grieving the loss of cultural power, who were grieving the loss of what they had seen and grown up with in their lives. And they're now trying to figure out what it means to live in a different place as exiles. And it's in the words of Jeremiah, the words of God through Jeremiah in this passage, that God answers that question. How do we live as exiles in our world? So friends, if you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to the book of Jeremiah. This is near the end of your Old Testament. If you're flipping there, I'm going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1 and reading all the way through verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, the words are going to be behind me on the screen. You can follow along there. Once again, this is Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans, the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, son of Shaphan, and Gamaria of Judah. I'm sorry, Gamaria, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar. It said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. 
For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the nation of Judah has done messed up. That's what this whole series has been about. Over the course of the last few weeks, we've been exploring what Jeremiah has been preaching to them. He's been saying, all of your injustice, all of your oppression, all of your overlooking of the poor and the needy, you've got to change your ways, or else you're going to become oppressed. There will be another empire. This is actually a great overview of human history. Where there's oppression, there will be another oppressor to oppress. And Babylon will come and destroy you and your city. But no one listened to Jeremiah when he proclaimed those things. And sure enough, it happened. Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, sent an army to Jerusalem and destroyed it. People were ripped from their homes, taken in chains hundreds of miles into foreign lands. Now, place yourself in these folks' shoes after this has happened. They're being forced out of their comfortable religious space. They're coming from a place where everyone looks the same and sounds the same and acts the same and believes the same things. They're being pushed into a new culture in Babylon where everything will be entirely opposite. On every street corner, in every work conversation, through all of the political and social maneuverings of the culture, they will encounter people who live and believe drastically differently than they do. They will feel every day like the outsider, the outcast, the weirdo. And that means they need to figure out a strategy for how to respond to this sort of exile. How are we going to live in that sort of culture? And we learn in this text that some of the corrupt religious professionals have an idea. Jeremiah condemns it, but this was the prominent idea for the people when they went to Babylon. They said, get to the region of Babylon, get to the outskirts of the city, but don't actually move in. Don't settle in. Stay on the outskirts of the culture. And they said this because, well, they didn't really think that exile was going to last very long. They thought, you know what? God really wants to restore us back to cultural power, and he's going to do that. So let's just wait around a little bit. Let's isolate from the culture and make ourselves a nice little holy huddle. And once we've done that, then God will quickly, in a couple years, bring us back. Their response to exile was to isolate themselves, to create their own little safe and secure place distant from the actual culture around them. And for many Christians today, that's the predominant response to living in exile. Isolate yourself. Distance yourself. Create your own little turtle shell protection away from the big bad world out there. And eventually you'll be back to the cultural power that you long for. I was speaking with uh, one of my students in a class I teach at GCU a couple semesters ago. And we were talking in the class about how non-Christians might experience the church services that we put on each week. So I asked those people, think of a non-Christian friend in your life, someone who's not a believer. How would they respond to a Christian service? And two kids in the class raised their hand. And they said, I don't have any non-Christian friends. I can't think of anyone because I've been raised in a holy huddle. I've been raised isolated from the people around me. 
I've responded to exile by distancing myself. This is the predominant mode of Christians in America. We create our own little subculture. We have a Christian movie industry, right? So then we really lose any engagement with the predominant filmmaking and artistry of Hollywood. We have a separate Christian music industry, and that means that we often have very little say in the artistic maneuverings of our culture. We have a separate Christian school and university circuit, so that now Christians have very little cultural sway in the major halls of intellectual formation in our world. And none of those things are intrinsically bad. A school isn't bad, music isn't bad, movies aren't bad. We sing those songs this morning. They can be really beautiful. But if that's all we do, if that's all we spend our time doing, then we're going to lose any real meaningful influence on the culture around us. And that's precisely what's happening today. You guys, any of you grow up in the church and have your parents say, oh, you can't read Harry Potter. Remember that whole move, right? Yeah, no Harry Potter. Which is hilarious because it's a fictional story with parallels that actually have some really great biblical thematic connections in it. But who knows? Your kid might start flying around on a broomstick. Who knows, right? Like, what might happen if they read Harry Potter? Isolation, right? What the people in Jeremiah's time did is exactly what we often do. And the problem with that is that things aren't changing anytime soon. That's what Jeremiah is getting at here. You're not returning to exile anytime soon. Friends, Christianity is not going to be the predominant framework in the West anytime soon. It's not going to happen. We're not returning to places of cultural power. We've lost the culture war, as people tend to term it. It's gone. So that means we need to learn how to live in exile, not isolate ourselves from it. This strategy won't work at all. And that's why Jeremiah writes what he does here. He's writing a letter to the people who are in exile, saying, don't isolate, live differently. And there's three different things that he tells these people to do, that God tells these people to do through Jeremiah. He tells them to settle in, he tells them to seek the flourishing of the city, and he tells them to signify hope in God's ultimate flourishing. Seek the flourishing of the city, settle in, and signify hope in God's ultimate flourishing. First, we see his command to settle in in verse 6. You may have caught it. He says, build houses, plant gardens, marry and have kids, let your kids have kids. In other words, make yourselves at home for a long time, for multiple generations. Make this your home. Settle down here. Plant roots here. And think how radical that would have been to the people that Jeremiah is writing to here. Where are they living? Babylon. This is the enemy. This is the oppressor. These are the people who ripped them from their homes. And God is saying, yeah, move in next to those people. Move into the bad neighborhoods. Move into the places that aren't comfortable or safe. Settle in there. Make those people your neighbors. Friends, followers of God are the sorts of people who invest deeply and fully into the place or culture they're in, even when it doesn't feel like home. Even when it's really, really difficult. Even when those people are actively opposing we aren't tourists in our neighborhood. We aren't tourists in our culture. We aren't watching things from the outside. We are residents. And we commit ourselves to knowing and supporting and caring for the people around us, no matter how they oppose us. And investing in a place like this, putting down roots, takes time and real, serious, hard questions. To build homes, you have to have an understanding of the lay of the land. To plant gardens, you have to know how the soil works and what's going to grow and what doesn't. 
Followers of God are called to get to know their neighborhood and their culture really, really well. To spend real time understanding the contours and the nuances of those places. Which means before we ever take any action in the world out there, we need to become expert listeners. Which is something that Christians predominantly haven't been great at in the past. Christians love to move in and impose what they think is best for a culture. That's not how it works in exile. No one will listen. Instead, we need to start the listening process. If the Christian faith is going to make sense to anyone in the world where it's a minority, it has to start with honoring and respecting and listening to the people around us. And so we have to ask some really good questions. Things like, what are the major felt needs of the neighborhood or the culture around me? What are the pain points of these people? What are the hopes and dreams of these people? What systems and structures are already doing great work to bring life here? And that's why here at Midtown, our leadership and our elder board are in the process of doing that in this neighborhood right now. We're trying to make connections across businesses, across nonprofits, across neighborhood outreach organizations so that we can better know what's going on here. What's working well? What do people need? And how can we participate in their needs? How can we help? And when we start in that position, when we start as listeners in exile, it lends dignity and respect to our neighbors. It doesn't assume that we know better than them. It assumes that they could be just as right about what they need in their neighborhood as we could. And they actually oftentimes will have a better say because they know the soil that they're in. We need to learn and grow in our listening capacity. So Christians start by becoming people who settle in in exile. Settle into a neighborhood. Settle in to your workplace. Settle in. Build homes. Plant gardens. But we don't just stop there. It's how we settle in that's also really important. When we settle in, we also seek the welfare, Jeremiah says. Did you notice that that list, build homes, plant gardens, have kids, and have more kids, and have more kids? Right? That includes a variety of different parts of culture. He's talking about economic components. He's talking about social components. He's talking about ecological components. Christians are called to seek holistic life in the spaces that they inhabit. And he slams this idea home in the next verse, in verse 7. He says, seek the welfare of the place you're in. The word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is this amazing, multifaceted Hebrew word. It involves comprehensive, holistic flourishing at every level of society. In exile, Christians are not just people who enter into their culture. They're people who seek holistic peace and flourishing in those places. Which means we don't just promote nice spiritual ideas or beliefs. That's a part of what we do. But we also seek to make the neighborhood that we inhabit a great place to live, for everyone there. We're called to commit to comprehensive well-being of the world around us. And in doing so, we actually end up doing precisely what Christ called us to do, which is to find our uh, goodness and our life in the life of the one we give ourselves to. It's to pour ourselves out. And when we do that, we end up receiving the very life that we're made for. When we die to ourselves and live for others, we get the life that we're longing for. There's a great poet named Wendell Berry who talks about this. He puts it this way. He says, if we're looking for insurance against wars and oppression, we'll find it only in our neighbor's prosperity and goodwill. And beyond that, in the good health of our worldly places, our homelands. If we were sincerely looking for a place of safety, for real security and success, then we would begin to turn to our communities. And not the communities simply of our human neighbors, 
but of the water, the earth, the air, the plants, and the animals, all the creatures with whom our local life is shared. That's what it means to seek the welfare of the city we're in, seek comprehensive flourishing. And when I look around this room, I see people who can do just that. In this little group of people, there are a vast array of vocations, of jobs, of work. There are teachers in this room. There are nurses in this room. There are artists in this room. There are uh, political people in this room right now. All of you are called to be exiles in your particular space right now, and that's precisely the point. Because you have the power to use your gifts to bring holistic flourishing to those around you. We're not called to form holy huddles. We're called to leave this place into all of the places that we go with our gifts, with our talents, with our skills, and to seek life on all fronts. And so we do that together here at Midtown. We seek to do that. We empower one another to do just that. We do that on McDowell here in Central Phoenix. We use our specific gifts to bring flourishing. We do that in our offices to bring flourishing through our specific gifts. We do that in our schools throughout the week using our specific gifts to bring flourishing. We do that in the lives of our neighbors, using our gifts to bring flourishing. But it doesn't stop there. Notice we settle into the culture, we seek the welfare, we seek shalom, but our action actually isn't the end of this story. What we do isn't the point. Notice the text continues in this letter. In verse 10, God reminds them that exile isn't the end of the story and that he is going to bring comprehensive shalom. That we seek the shalom, a picture of it, a little pocket of it, a little foretaste of it that God will eventually reveal and bring. And so our job is to settle in and seek the welfare, but it's also to signify the hope that God will bring peace, that God will bring shalom eventually. And that means that we live as different sorts of people when we settle in and seek the flourishing. God says, make yourself at home, certainly. Settle down here, but remember that your true home is somewhere else. Don't become so accustomed to the culture that you just adopt their practices and cultures full sail. Live amidst them, but live with a different set of priorities guiding you. Christians are the sort of people who know their home is with God, but who also know they inhabit a home of different priorities and who do both of those things in tension with one another. That's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament refers to Christians as ambassadors. It's a really packed analogy. But ambassadors, their role is to live in a different country as a representative of their home country. They represent the priorities of that home country. And a good ambassador really lives well in the country they're visiting. They get to know the language, they get to know the culture, they live in it. If you didn't know they were ambassador, they would feel like they're from this place. But they would always represent the priorities of their home country. They would have different things that guide their action in the midst of that culture. Something that would signify, oh wait, like you're, you seem like you're from here, but you're not. There's something else about you that's unique. And so we are called to do the same things in our culture. We are ambassadors of sacrificial love in a me-first culture. We are ambassadors who look out for the poor and needy when the rest of our world steps on them. We are ambassadors who are concerned far more with generosity than we are with hoarding and maintaining our own stuff. And when we live that way in our culture, people will notice Actually, people have noticed this about Christians for a long time. When they've done their job well, this has been the predominant way that Christians are that people have understood the power of Christ. There's a, a letter that I wanted to share with you guys. This is from the first few centuries of the church. This is a letter written by a non-Christian to someone else about the ways that Christians live. Really, really powerful letter. This is called the Epistle to Diognetus. 
They say Christians are distinguished from others neither by country nor language, meaning they live in this country as ambassadors. Nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves advocates of any merely human doctrines. Following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but as sojourners. They marry, as do all others, and they beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. Human sacrifice and child sacrifice. Leaving your kid out if you didn't want it was commonplace at this time. So Christians don't do that. They have kids, but they don't treat them the same way. They have a common table. They're hospitable, but they don't have a common bed. They don't sleep around. They're in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass those laws by their lives. They love all people and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They're in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They're dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They're reviled and blessed. They're insulted and repay the insult with honor. They're ambassadors. Christians are called to live in earthly cultures and neighborhoods as citizens of heaven and to seek the flourishing of that place as a signifier of the flourishing that God is ultimately going to bring to all things and to all people. You guys, I want to invite everyone to take a look out these windows here. Turn and look. If your chair makes it hard to look, turn your chair. You're going to be looking out the window for a second. Pay attention to this street, to the, the cars driving by and the shut down storefronts. Now keep looking and imagine with me that you're no longer looking at this street in the year 2022. You're flashing back to the 1940s. McDowell back then was just two lanes and believe it or not, it was actually seen as the most glamorous street in all of Phoenix. This stretch right here. Keep looking. It used to be a bustling center of community and connection. Lining each side of the street were restaurants and delis and stores and craftspeople, small businesses and entrepreneurs. They were empowered and supported. Families would walk from place to place. They'd build relationships and support their neighbors. The first governor of Arizona, George W.P. Hunt, lived on this street. And for many of our parents and grandparents, this was the most desirable place to eat and to shop and to walk in all of Phoenix. And so it was called the Miracle Mile. It was a place of vibrancy and life and flourishing for all who lived and worked and walked here. But keep looking. Soon, all of that life and flourishing on the street changed for the worse. There's a, a dynamic that set in called suburban sprawl here in Phoenix. This city became a hot destination, literally and figuratively, right, for people to move from back east and enjoy the wide open spaces and delightful winters of Phoenix. And so over the next 50 years, it became one of the fastest growing cities in the country. And in order to accommodate that growth, things needed to become faster and faster and faster. Small businesses and craftspeople were overtaken by malls, suburban chains, large corporations. And in order to maximize the speed to get to those places, this stopped becoming a bustling center of family life for people. It changed from one lane to the five you see now. The speed limit was raised, so now it's virtually unwalkable. And then in 2008, when the recession rolled around, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, if you're still looking out the window, you can return to 2022 to me. Friends, this place that had once been a vibrant home and source of life has become a wasteland. People have been forced to close their businesses because this isn't a viable location for them anymore. They can't support a business on a street like this. And so people have moved out of the neighborhood. And for the ones who have stayed, it's been hard. Poverty is commonplace. Homes are foreclosing. Crime has increased. We live in one of the lowest income areas in Phoenix, just south of here, the Garfield neighborhood. 
This family-oriented, community-centric neighborhood home full of life and flourishing died. And the Miracle Mile, this gateway oasis to the city, was now a desert. But in the last few years, something has started to shift here. This stretch of Phoenix has become a home to a myriad of diverse business owners and residents who have committed to settling in. And you know who they mostly are made of? Exiles, refugees, and asylum seekers. Since 1980, over 70,000 people from more than 109 countries have settled into Maricopa County alone, and many of them have started businesses right here on the Miracle Mile. There's the Bati Bazaar Grocery and Juba Restaurant, which were both started by Somali and East African immigrants. There's authentic Ethio-African spices right here, walking distance from here, started by Ethiopian immigrants. More than 50% of the businesses along the Miracle Mile are owned by Latinos, from restaurants to quinceanera shops right here. And Asian culture is also represented. There's Chinese and Vietnamese and Thai restaurants, all walking distance from where we stand. You guys see what's happening here? In the midst of exile, in the midst of a community that seemed like it was a place of death, people are settling in. People are seeking the flourishing of this neighborhood. They're wanting to see this place become a social and familial and economic uh, oasis once more. And so we at Midtown have an opportunity to join them. Because we're exiles too, in a different way, but we're exiles in our own ways. We have the opportunity to settle into this neighborhood, to this place. That's why just yesterday we had a couple huge events connected to our neighbors. We handed out trees to people in Garfield who needed them. Free trees from the city. We handed out 140 trees yesterday. Yeah, awesome. Not that the number matters. It could have been four trees and it still would have been worth it. But it was amazing. I have blisters on my hands, but it was amazing. And then last night, there was a community event with free food and a bunch of different organizations that can help support many of the folks in need in this neighborhood. We showed up. We handed out popsicles. We met people. We invited them to trunk or treat. And we said, hey, we want to be people who love you and care for you and seek the flourishing of this space. That's what we want to be at Midtown. When we do things like trunk or treat, we're not just doing it for our own sake. We're doing it so that we can participate in the flourishing of our city. And so, friends... Join us here at Midtown. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome to join us, to settle in to this place, to build homes and put down roots. And then you're welcome to seek the flourishing of these neighbors in every level of life, in the economic, in the social, in the spiritual, in the emotional. And then, more than anything, you're welcome to signify the hope that is coming in Christ, the hope that resolves all injustice, that dances upon injustice, like we just said. Join us here at Midtown, friends. This is how we live in exile. Let's pray.